0: Chapter twenty one of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens The Expedition It was a cheerless morning when they got into the street, blowing and raining hard, and the clouds looking dull and stormy. The night had been very wet, large pools of water had collected in the road, and the kennels were overflowing. There was a faint glimmering of the coming day in the sky, but it rather aggravated than relieved the gloom of the scene the sombre light only serving to pale that which the street lamps afforded, without shedding any warmer or brighter tints upon the wet housetops and dreary streets. There appeared to be nobody stirring in that quarter of the town, the windows of the houses were all closely shut, and the streets through which they passed were noiseless and empty. By the time they had turned into the Bethnal green road the day had fairly begun to break. Many of the lamps were already extinguished. A few country waggons were slowly toiling on towards London, now and then a stage-coach, covered with mud, rattled briskly by, the driver bestowing as he passed an admonitory lash upon the heavy waggoner who, by keeping on the wrong side of the road, had endangered his arriving at the office a quarter of a minute after his time. The public-houses, with gas-lights burning inside, were already open. By degrees other shops began to be unclosed, and a few scattered people were met with. Then came straggling groups of labourers going to their work, then men and women with fish-baskets on their heads, donkey-carts laden with vegetables, chaise-carts filled with livestock or whole carcasses of meat, milk-women with pails, an unbroken concourse of people trudging out with various supplies to the eastern suburbs of the town. As they approached the city the noise and traffic gradually increased. When they threaded the streets between Shoreditch and Smithfield, it had swelled into a roar of sound and bustle. It was as light as it was likely to be, till night came on again, and the busy morning of half the London population had begun. Turning down Sun Street and Crown Street, and crossing Finsbury Square, Mr. Sykes struck, by way of Chiswell Street, into Barbican thence into Long Lane, and so into Smithfield, from which latter place arose a tumult of discordant sounds that filled Oliver Twist with amazement. It was market morning. The ground was covered, nearly ankle-deep, with filth and mire, a thick steam perpetually rising from the reeking bodies of the cattle, and mingling with the fog which seemed to rest upon the chimney-tops, hung heavily above. All the pens in the centre of the large area, and as many temporary pens as could be crowded into the vacant space, were filled with sheep. Tied up to posts by the gutter-side were long lines of beasts and oxen, three or four deep. Countrymen, butchers, drovers, hawkers, boys, thieves, idlers, and vagabonds of every low grade were mingled together in a mass—the whistling of drovers, the barking of dogs, the bellowing and plunging of the oxen the bleating of sheep, the grunting and squeaking of pigs, the cries of hawkers, the shouts, oaths, and quarrelling on all sides, the ringing of bells and roar of voices that issued from every public-house, the crowding, pushing, driving, beating, whooping and yelling, the hideous and discordant dim that resounded from every corner of the market, the unwashed unshaven, squalid and dirty figures constantly running to and fro, and bursting in and out of the throng rendered it a stunning and bewildering scene which quite confounded the senses. Mr. Sykes, dragging Oliver after him, elbowed his way through the thickest of the crowd, and bestowed very little attention on the numerous sights and sounds which so astonished the boy. He nodded twice or thrice to a passing friend, and, resisting as many invitations to take a morning dram, pressed steadily onward until they were clear of the turmoil, and made their way through Hosier Lane into Holborn. Now, young'un. Said Sykes, looking up at the clock of St Andrew's Church, "Odd upon seven, you must step out. Come, don't lie behind already, lazy legs." Mr. Sykes accompanied this speech with a jerk at his little companion's wrist. Oliver, quickening his pace into a kind of trot between a fast walk and a run, kept up with the rapid strides of the housebreaker as well as he could. They held their course at this rate until they had passed Hyde Park Corner and were on their way to Kensington. When Sikes relaxed his pace, until an empty cart, which was at some little distance behind, came up. Seeing Hounslow written on it, he asked the driver, with as much civility as he could assume, if he could give them a lift as far as Isleworth. "'Jump up,' said the man. Is that your boy?' "'Yes, he's my boy,' replied Sikes, looking hard at Oliver, and putting his hand abstractedly into the pocket where the pistol was. "'Your father walks rather too quick for you, don't he, man?" inquired the driver, seeing that Oliver was out of breath. "'Not a bit of it,' replied Sikes, interposing. "'He's used to it. Here, take hold of my hand, Ned. In with you.' Thus addressing Oliver, he helped him into the cart, and the driver, pointing to a heap of sacks, told him to lie down there and rest himself. As they passed different milestones Oliver wondered, more and more, where his companion meant to take him. Kensington, Hammersmith, Chiswick, Kewbridge, Brentford, were all past and yet they went on as steadily as if they had only just begun their journey. At length they came to a public-house called the Coach and Horses, a little way beyond which another road appeared to turn off, and here the cart stopped. Sykes dismounted with great precipitation, holding Oliver by the hand all the while, and lifting him down directly, bestowed a furious look upon him, and wrapped the side-pocket with his fist, in a significant manner. "'Good-bye, boy,' said the man. "'He's sulky.' replied Sykes, giving him a shake, he's sulky, a young dog, don't mind him. Not I, rejoined the other, getting into his cart, it's a fine day, after all. And he drove away. Sykes waited until he had fairly gone, and then, telling Oliver he might look about him if he wanted, once again led him onward on his journey. They turned round to the left, a short way past the public-house, and then, taking a right-hand road, walked on for a long time passing many large gardens and gentlemen's houses on both sides of the way, and stopping for nothing but a little beer until they reached a town. Here against the wall of the house Oliver saw written up in pretty large letters HAMPTON. They lingered about in the fields for some hours. At length they came back into the town, and turning into an old public-house with a defaced sign-board, ordered some dinner by the kitchen fire. The kitchen was an old low-roofed room, with a great beam across the middle of the ceiling, and benches with high backs to them by the fire, on which were seated several rough men in smock-frocks, drinking and smoking. They took no notice of Oliver, and very little of Sykes, and as Sykes took very little notice of them, he and his young comrades sat in a corner by themselves, without being much troubled by their company. They had some cold meat for dinner, and sat so long after it, while Mr. Sykes indulged himself with three or four pipes, that Oliver began to feel quite certain they were not going any further. Being much tired with the walk, and getting up so early, he dozed a little at first, then, quite overpowered by fatigue and the fumes of the tobacco, fell asleep. It was quite dark when he was awakened by a push from Sykes. Rousing himself sufficiently to sit up and look about him, he found that worthy in close fellowship and communication with a labouring man over a pint of ale. "'So, you're going to Lower Halliford, are you?' inquired Sikes. "'Yes, I am,' replied the man, who seemed a little the worse, or better, as the case may be, for drinking. "'And not slow about it, neither. My horse has it got a low behind him going back, as he had coming up in the morning, and he won't be long a-doing of it. There's luck to him. Eh hey God, he's a good un!' Can you give me and the boy a lift as far as there?' demanded Sikes, pushing the ale towards his new friend. "'If you're going directly I can,' replied the man, looking out of the pot. "'Are you going to Alliford?' "'Going to Shepperton,' replied Sikes. "'I'm your man as far as I go,' replied the other. "'Is all paid, Becky?' "'Yes, the other gentleman's paid,' replied the girl. "'I say,' said the man, with tipsy gravity, "'that won't do, you know.' "'Why not?' rejoined Sykes. "'You're a-going to accommodate us, and what's to prevent my standing tree for a pint or so in return?' The stranger reflected upon this argument with a very profound face. Having done so, he seized Sykes by the hand, and declared he was a real good fellow, to which Mr. Sykes replied he was joking, as, if he had been sober, there would have been strong reason to suppose he was. After the exchange of a few more compliments, they bade the company good-night, and went out the girl gathering up the pots and glasses as they did so, and lounging out to the door with her hands full, to see the party start. The horse whose health had been drunk in his absence was standing outside, ready harnessed to the cart. Oliver and Sykes got in without any further ceremony, and the man to whom he belonged, having lingered for a minute or two to bear him up, and to defy the hostler and the world to produce his equal, mounted also. Then the hostler was told to give the horse his head, and his head being given him, he made a very unpleasant use of it, tossing it into the air with great disdain, and running into the parlour-windows over the way. After performing those feats, and supporting himself for a short time on his hind-legs, he started off at great speed, and rattled out of the town right gallantly. The night was very dark, a damp mist rose from the river and the marshy ground about, and spread itself over the dreary fields. It was piercing cold, too—all was gloomy and black. Not a word was spoken, for the driver had grown sleepy, and Sykes was in no mood to lead him into conversation. Oliver sat huddled together in a corner of the cart, bewildered with alarm and apprehension, and figuring strange objects in the gaunt trees, whose branches waved grimly to and fro, as if in some fantastic joy at the desolation of the scene. As they passed Sunbury Church the clock struck seven. There was a light in the Ferry-house window opposite, which streamed across the road, and threw into more sombre shadow a dark yew-tree with graves beneath it. There was a dull sound of falling water not far off, and the leaves of the old tree stirred gently in the night wind. It seemed like quiet music for the repose of the dead. Somebody was passed through, and they came again into the lonely road. Two or three miles more, and the cart stopped. Sykes alighted, took Oliver by the hand, and they once again walked on. They turned into no house at Shepperton, as the weary boy had expected, but still kept walking on, in mud and darkness, through gloomy lanes and over cold open wastes, until they came within sight of the lights of a town at no great distance. On looking intently forward, Oliver saw that the water was just below them, and that they were coming to the foot of a bridge. Sikes kept straight on until they were close upon the bridge, then turned suddenly down a bank upon the left. "'The water,' thought Oliver, turning sick with fear, "'he has brought me to this lonely place to murder me.' He was about to throw himself on the ground and make one struggle for his young life, when he saw that they stood before a solitary house, all ruinous and decayed. There was a window on each side of the dilapidated entrance, and one storey above, but no light was visible. The house was dark, dismantled and to all appearance uninhabited. Sykes with Oliver's hand still in his, softly approached the low porch and raised the latch. The door yielded to the pressure, and they passed in together. End of chapter 21. Chapter 22 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. The burglary. Hello? cried a loud hoarse voice as soon as they set foot in the passage don't make such a row said Sykes, bolting the door show a glim toby aha my pal cried the same voice a glim barney a glim show the gentleman in barney wake up first if convenient the speaker appeared to throw a bootjack or some such article at the person he addressed to rouse him from his slumbers for the noise of a wooden body falling violently was heard, and then an indistinct muttering, as of a man between asleep and awake. "'Do you hear?' cried the same voice. "'There's Bill Sikes in the passage, with nobody to do the civil to him, and you sleeping there as if you took laudanum with your meals and nothing stronger. Are you any fresher now, or do you want the iron candlestick to wake you thoroughly?' A pair of slip-shod feet shuffled hastily across the bare floor of the room, as this interrogatory was put and there issued, from a door on the right hand, first a feeble candle, and next the form of the same individual who has been heretofore described as labouring under the infirmity of speaking through his nose, and officiating as waiter at the public-house on Saffron Hill. "'Mr. Sykes exclaimed Barney, with real or counterfeit joy. "'Cobid, sir, co Yeah, you get on first, said Sykes, putting Oliver in front of him. "'Quicker, or I shall tread upon your heels.' Muttering a curse upon his tardiness, Sykes pushed Oliver before him, and they entered a low dark room, with a smoky fire, two or three broken chairs, a table, and a very old couch, on which, with his legs much higher than his head, a man was reposing at full length, smoking a long clay pipe. He was dressed in a smartly cut snuff-coloured coat, with large brass buttons, an orange neckerchief, a coarse staring shawl-pattern waistcoat, and drab breeches. Mr. Crackett, for he it was, had no very great quantity of hair, either upon his head or face, but what he had was of a reddish dye, and tortured into long corkscrew curls, through which he occasionally thrust some very dirty fingers, ornamented with large common rings. He was a trifle above the middle size, and apparently rather weak in the legs. But this circumstance by no means detracted from his own admiration of his top-boots, which he contemplated in their elevated situation with lively satisfaction. "'Bill, my boy!' said this figure, turning his head towards the door. "'I'm glad to see you. I was almost afraid you'd given it up, in which case I should have made a personal venture. Hello!' Uttering this exclamation in a tone of great surprise as his eyes rested on Oliver, Mr. Toby Crackett brought himself into a sitting posture, and demanded who that was. "'The boy, only the boy.' replied Sykes, drawing a chair towards the fire, what of Mr. Fagin's lads exclaimed, Barney with a grin, Fagin's eh exclaimed Toby, looking at Oliver, what an invaluable boy that'll make for the old lady's pockets in chapels his mug is mug as a fortune to him there there's enough of that, interposed Sykes impatiently, and stooping over his recumbent friend, he whispered a few words in his ear at which Mr. Crackett laughed immensely and honoured Oliver with a long stare of astonishment. "'Now,' said Sikes, as he resumed his seat, "'if you'll give us something to eat and drink while we're waiting, you'll put some heart in us, or in me at all events. Sit down by the fire, yonker, and rest yourself, for you'll have to go out with us again to-night, though not very far off.' Oliver looked at Sikes, in mute and timid wonder, and drawing a stool to the fire, sat with his aching head upon his hands scarcely knowing where he was, or what was passing around him. "'Here,' said Toby, as the Jew placed some fragments of food and a bottle upon the table. "'Success to the crack!' He rose to honour the toast, and, carefully depositing his empty pipe in a corner, advanced to the table, filled the glass with spirits, and drank off its contents. Mr. Sykes did the same. "'A drain for the boy,' said Toby, half filling a wine-glass. "'Down with it, innocence. "'Indeed,' said Oliver, looking piteously up into the man's face, "'Indeed, I—' "'Down with it,' echoed Toby. "'Do you think I don't know what's good for you? "'Tell him to drink it, Bill.' "Ye would better,' said Sikes, slapping his hand upon his pocket, "'burn my body, if he is in more trouble than a whole family of dodgers. "'Drink it, you poor imp, drink it!' Frightened by the menacing gestures of the two men, Oliver hastily swallowed the contents of the glass and immediately fell into a violent fit of coughing, which delighted Toby Crackett and Barney, and even drew a smile from the surly Mr. Sykes. This done, and Sykes having satisfied his appetite, Oliver could eat nothing but a small crust of bread which they made him swallow, the two men lay themselves down on chairs for a short nap. Oliver retained his stool by the fire, Barney, wrapped in a blanket, stretched himself on the floor, close outside the fender. They slept, or appeared to sleep, for some time, nobody stirring but Barney, who rose once or twice to throw coals on the fire. Oliver fell into a heavy doze, imagining himself straying along the gloomy lanes, or wandering about the dark churchyard, or retracing some one or other of the scenes of the past day, when he was aroused by Toby Crackett jumping up and declaring it was half-past one. In an instant the other two were on their legs, and all were actively engaged in busy preparation. Sykes and his companion enveloped their necks and chins in large dark shawls, and drew on their great-coats. Barney, opening a cupboard, brought forth several articles, which he hastily crammed into the pockets. "'Barkers for me, Barney,' said Toby Crackit." "'Here they are,' replied Barney, producing a pair of pistols. "'You've them yourself.' "'All right,' replied Toby, stowing them away. "'The persuaders?' "'I've got em, replied Sykes. Crape, keys, centre-bits, darkies—nothing forgotten?' inquired Toby, fastening a small crowbar to a loop inside the skirt of his coat. "'All right,' rejoined his companion. "'Bring them bits o' timber, Barney. That's the time of day.' With these words he took a thick stick from Barney's hands, who, having delivered another to Toby, busied himself in fastening on Oliver's cape. "'Now, then,' said Sikes, holding out his hand. Oliver, who was completely stupefied by the unwonted exercise, and the air and the drink which had been forced upon him, put his hand mechanically into that which Sykes extended for the purpose. "'Take his other hand, Toby,' said Sykes, "'Look out, Barney.' The man went to the door, and returned to announce that all was quiet. The two robbers issued forth with Oliver between them. Barney, having made all fast, rolled himself up as before, and was soon asleep again. It was now intensely dark. The fog was much heavier than it had been in the early part of the night, and the atmosphere was so damp that though no rain fell, Oliver's hair and eyebrows, within a few minutes after leaving the house, had become stiff with the half-frozen moisture that was floating about. They crossed the bridge, and kept on towards the lights which they had seen before. They were at no great distance off, and, as they walked pretty briskly, they soon arrived at Chertsey. "'Slap through the town,' whispered Sykes. "'There'll be nobody in the way to-night to see us.' Toby acquiesced, and they hurried through the main street of the little town, which at that late hour was wholly deserted. A dim light shone at intervals from some bedroom window, and the hoarse barking of dogs occasionally broke the silence of the night. But there was nobody abroad. They had cleared the town as the church-bell struck two. Quickening their pace, they turned up a road upon the left hand. After walking about a quarter of a mile, they stopped before a detached house surrounded by a wall, to the top of which Toby Crackett, scarcely pausing to take breath, climbed in a twinkling. "'The boy next,' said Toby, "'hoist him up, I'll catch out of him.' Before Oliver had time to look round, Sikes had caught him under the arms, and in three or four seconds he and Toby were lying on the grass on the other side. Sikes followed directly, and they stole cautiously towards the house. And now, for the first time. Oliver, well-nigh mad with grief and terror, saw that house-breaking and robbery, if not murder, were the objects of the expedition. He clasped his hands together, and involuntarily uttered a subdued exclamation of horror. A mist came before his eyes. The cold sweat stood upon his ashy face, his limbs failed him, and he sank upon his knees. "'Get up!' murmured Sykes, trembling with rage, and drawing the pistol from his pocket. "'Get up, brods, strew your brains upon the grass!' oh for god's sake let me go cried oliver let me run away and die in the fields i'll never come near london never never oh pray have mercy on me do not make me steal for the love of all the bright angels that rest in heaven have mercy upon me the man to whom this appeal was made swore a dreadful oath and had cocked the pistol when toby striking it from his grasp placed his hand upon the boy's mouth and dragged him to the house hush cried the man it won't answer here Say another word, and I'll do the business myself with a crack on the head. That makes no noise, and is quite as certain, and more genteel. There, Bill, wrench the shutter open. He's game enough now, I'll engage. I've seen older hands of his age took the same way for a minute or two on a cold night." Sykes, invoking terrific imprecations upon Fagin's head for sending Oliver on such an errand, plied the crowbar vigorously, but with little noise. After some delay, and some assistance from Toby, The shutter, to which he had referred, swung open on its hinges. It was a little lattice-window, about five feet and a half above the ground, at the back of the house, which belonged to a scullery or small brewing-place at the end of the passage. The aperture was so small that the inmates had probably not thought it worth while to defend it more securely, but it was large enough to admit a boy of Oliver's size nevertheless. A very brief exercise of Mr. Sikes's art sufficed to overcome the fastening of the lattice, and it soon stood wide open also. "'Now listen, you young limb,' whispered Sykes, drawing a dark lantern from his pocket, and throwing the glare full on Oliver's face. "'I'm a going to put you through there. Take this light, go softly up the steps straight afore you, and along the little hole, to the street door. Unfasten it, and let us in.' there's a boat at the top you won't be able to reach interposed toby stand upon one of the hall chairs there are three there bill with a large jolly blue unicorn and a gold pitchfork on em which is the old lady's arms keep quiet can't you replied sikes with a threatening look the room door's open is it wide replied toby after peeping in to satisfy himself the game of that is that they always leave it open with a catch, so that the dog, who's got a bed in there, may walk up and down the passage, if he feels wakeful. <laughs> Barney tossed him away to-night. So neat!" Although Mr. Crackett spoke in a scarcely audible whisper, and laughed without noise, Sykes imperiously commanded him to be silent, and to get to work. Toby complied, by first producing his lantern and placing it on the ground, then by planting himself firmly with his head against the wall beneath the window and his hands upon his knees so as to make a step of his back. This was no sooner done than Sykes, mounting upon him, put Oliver gently through the window with his feet first, and, without leaving hold of his collar, planted him safely on the floor inside. "'Take this lantern,' said Sykes, looking into the room. "'You see the stairs before you?' Oliver, more dead than alive, gasped out. "'Yes.' Sykes, pointing to the street-door with a pistol-barrel, Briefly advised him to take notice that he was within shot all the way, and that if he faltered he would fall dead that instant. It's done in a minute, said Sikes in the same low whisper. Directly I leave go of you, do your work. Hark! What's that? whispered the other man. They listened intently. Nothing, said Sikes, releasing his hold of Oliver. Now! In the short time he had had to collect his senses, the boy had firmly resolved that whether he died in the attempt or not, he would make one effort to dart upstairs from the hall and alarm the family. Filled with this idea, he advanced at once, but stealthily. "'Come back!' cried Sykes aloud. "'Back! back!' Scared by the sudden breaking of the dead stillness of the place, and by a loud cry which followed it, Oliver let his lantern fall, and knew not whether to advance or fly. The cry was repeated, a light appeared, a vision of two terrified, half-dressed men at the top of the stairs swam before his eyes. A flash, a loud noise, a smoke, a crash somewhere—but where he knew not—and he staggered back. Sykes had disappeared for an instant, but he was up again and had him by the collar before the smoke had cleared away. He fired his own pistol after the men, who were already retreating, and dragged the boy up. "Cross your arm tighter," said Sykes as he drew him through the window. "Give me a shoal here. They've hit him. Quick! the boy blades." then came the loud ringing of a bell mingled with the noise of firearms and the shouts of men and the sensation of being carried over uneven ground at a rapid pace and then the noises grew confused in the distance and a cold deadly feeling crept over the boy's heart and he saw or heard no more chapter twenty two chapter twenty three of oliver twist by charles dickens which contains the substance of a pleasant conversation between Mr. Bumble and a lady, and shows that even a beadle may be susceptible on some points. The night was bitter cold. The snow lay on the ground, frozen into a hard thick crust, so that only the heaps that had drifted into byways and corners were affected by the sharp wind that howled abroad, which, as if expending increased fury on such prey as it found, caught it savagely up in clouds, and, whirling it into a thousand misty eddies, scattered it in air. Bleak, dark, and piercing cold, it was a night for the well-housed and fed to draw round the bright fire and thank God they were at home, and for the homeless, starving wretch to lay himself down and die. Many hunger-worn outcasts closed their eyes in our bare streets at such times, who, let their crimes have been what they may, can hardly open them in a more bitter world. Such was the aspect of -of out-of-doors affairs, when Mrs. Corney, the matron of the workhouse to which our readers have been already introduced as the birthplace of Oliver Twist, sat herself down before a cheerful fire in her own little room, and glanced, with no small degree of complacency, at a small round table, on which stood a tray of corresponding size furnished with all necessary materials for the most grateful meal that matrons enjoy. In fact, Mrs. Corney was about to solace herself with a cup of tea. As she glanced from the table to the fireplace, where the smallest of all possible kettles was singing a small song in a small voice, her inward satisfaction evidently increased, so much so, indeed, that Mrs. Corney smiled. "'Well,' said the matron, leaning her elbow on the table, and looking reflectively at the fire. I'm sure we have all on us a great deal to be grateful for—a great deal, if we did but know it." Ah! Mrs. Corney shook her head mournfully, as if deploring the mental blindness of those paupers who did not know it, and thrusting a silver spoon—private property—into the inmost recesses of a two-ounce tin tea-caddy, proceeded to make the tea. How slight a thing will disturb the equanimity of our frail minds—the black teapot being very small and easily filled! ran over while Mrs. Corney was moralising, and the water slightly scalded Mrs. Corney's hand. Drop the pot,' said the wordy matron, setting it down very hastily on the hob, "'a little stupid thing that only holds a couple of cups. What use is it to anybody?' "'Except,' said Mrs. Corney, pausing, "'except to a poor desolate creature like me. Oh, dear!' With these words the matron dropped into her chair, and once more resting her elbow on the table thought of her solitary fate the small teapot and the single cup had awakened in her mind sad recollections of mr corney who had not been dead more than five-and-twenty years and she was overpowered i shall never get another said mrs corney pettishly i shall never get another like him whether this remark bore reference to her husband or the teapot is uncertain it might have been the latter for mrs corney looked at it as she spoke and took it up afterwards she had just tasted her first cup when she was disturbed by a soft tap at the room-door. "'Oh, come in with you,' said Mrs. Corney sharply. "'Some of the old women dying, I suppose—they always die when I'm at meals. Don't stand there letting the cold air in, don't. What's amiss now, hey? "'Nothing, ma'am, nothing,' replied a man's voice. "'Dear me!' exclaimed the matron, in a much sweeter tone. "'Is that Mr. Bumble?' "'At your service, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble, who had been stopping outside to rub his shoes clean, and to shake the snow off his coat, and who now made his appearance bearing the cocked hat in one hand and a bundle in the other. "'Shall I shut the door, ma'am?' The lady modestly hesitated to reply, lest there should be any impropriety in holding an interview with Mr. Bumble with closed doors. Mr. Bumble, taking advantage of the hesitation, and being very cold himself, shut it without permission. "'Hard weather, Mr. Bumble,' said the matron. "'Hard indeed, ma'am,' replied the beadle. parochial weather, this, ma'am. "'We have given away, Mrs. Corney, "'we have given away a matter of twenty-quarter loaves "'and a cheese and a half this very blessed afternoon, "'and yet them paupers are not contented.' "'Of course not. "'When would they be, Mr. Bumble?' said the matron, sipping her tea. "'When indeed, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble, why there's one man that in consideration of his wife and large family has a quarter loaf and a good pound of cheese full weight is he grateful ma'am is he grateful not a copper farthing worth of it now what does he do ma'am but ask for a few coals if it's only a pocket-handkerchief he says coals what would he do with coals toast his cheese with them and then come back for more "'That's the way with these people, ma'am. Give em an apron full of coals to-day, and they'll come back for another, the day after to-morrow, as brazen as alabaster.' The matron expressed her entire concurrence in this intelligible simile, and the beadle went on. No, "'I never,' said Mr. Bumble, "'see anything like the pitch it's got to. "'The day before yesterday, a man—you have been a married woman, ma'am, and I may mention it to you—a man with hardly a rag upon his back.' Here Mrs. Corney looked at the floor. Goes to our overseer's door when he has got company coming to dinner and says he must be relieved mrs. Corney as He wouldn't go away and shock the company very much our overseer sent him out a pound of potatoes and a half pint of oatmeal My heart says the ungrateful villain. What's the use of this to me? You might as well give me a pair of iron spectacles Very good says our overseer taking them away again you won't get anything else here well, then I'll die on the street said the vagrant ''No, no, you won't,'' says our overseer. Ah, ''That was very good. So like Mr. Granite, wasn't it?'' interposed the matron. ''Well, Mr. Bumble?'' ''Well, ma'am,'' rejoined the beadle, ''he went away, and he did die in the streets. There's an option of pauper for you.'' ''It beats anything I could have believed,'' observed the matron emphatically. ''But don't you think out-of-door relief a very bad thing, anyway, Mr. Bumble? You're a gentleman of experience, and ought to know. "'Come.' "'Mrs. Corney,' said the beadle, smiling as men smile, who are conscious of superior information, "'out-of-door relief, properly managed—properly uh, managed, ma'am, is the parochial safeguard. "'The great principle of out-of-door relief is to give the porpoise exactly what they don't want, "'and then they get tired of coming.' "'To me,' exclaimed Mrs. Corney, "'well, that is a good one, too.' "'Yes, betwixt you and me, ma'am,' returned Mr. Bumble. "'That's the great principle. "'And that's the reason why, if you look at any cases that gets into them audacious newspapers, "'you'll always observe that sick families have been relieved with slices of cheese. "'That's the rule now, Mrs. Corney, all over the country.' "'But, however,' said the beadle, stopping to unpack his bundle, "'these are official secrets, ma'am, not to be spoken of, "'except, as I may say, among the parochial officers such as ourselves.' "'This is the port wine, ma'am, that the board ordered for the infirmary. A real, fresh, genuine port wine, only out of the cask this afternoon, clear as a bell, and now sediment.' Having held the first bottle up to the light, and shaken it well to test its excellence, Mr. Bumble placed them both on top of a chest of drawers, folded the handkerchief in which they had been wrapped, put it carefully in his pocket, and took up his hat as if to go. "'You'll have a very cold walk, Mr. Bumble,' said the matron. "'It blows, ma'am,' replied Mr. Bumble, turning up his coat-collar. "'Enough to cut one's ears off.' The matron looked from the little kettle to the beadle, who was moving towards the door, and, as the beadle coughed, preparatory to bidding her good-night, bashfully inquired whether—whether he wouldn't take a cup of tea. Mr. Bumble instantaneously turned back his collar again, laid his hat and stick upon a chair, and drew another chair up to the table. As he slowly seated himself, he looked at the lady. She fixed her eyes upon the little teapot. Mr. Bumble coughed again, and slightly smiled. Mrs. Corney rose to get another cup and saucer from the closet. As she sat down, her eyes once again encountered those of the gallant beadle. She coloured, and applied herself to the task of making his tea. Again Mr. Bumble coughed, louder this time than he had coughed yet. "'Sweet, Mr. Bumble,' inquired the matron, taking up the sugar-basin. "'Very sweet indeed, ma'am,' replied Mr. Bumble. He fixed his eyes upon Mrs. Corney as he said this, and if ever a beadle looked tender, Mr. Bumble was that beadle at that moment. The tea was made and handed in silence. Mr. Bumble, having spread a handkerchief over his knees to prevent the crumb from sullying the splendour of his shorts, began to eat and drink varying these amusements occasionally by fetching a deep sigh, which, however, had no injurious effect upon his appetite, but, on the contrary, rather seemed to facilitate his operations in the tea-and-toast department. "'You have a cat, ma'am, I see,' said Mr. Bumble, glancing at one who, in the centre of her family, was basking before the fire. "'And kittens too, I declare.' "'I am so fond of them, Mr. Bumble, you can't think.' replied the matron, they're so happy, so frolicsome, and so cheerful, that they are quite companions for me. A very nice animals, ma'am, replied mr Bumble approvingly, so very domestic. Oh, yes, rejoined the matron with enthusiasm, so fond of their home, too, that it's quite a pleasure, I'm sure. A Mrs Corney, ma'am, said mr Bumble slowly, and marking the time with his teaspoon, i mean to say this ma'am that any cat or kitten that could live with you ma'am and not be fond of his home must be a ass ma'am oh mr bumble remonstrated mrs corney it's of no use disguising facts ma'am said mr bumble slowly flourishing the teaspoon with a kind of amorous dignity which made him doubly impressive i would drown it myself with pleasure well, then you're a cruel man said the matron vivaciously as she held out her hand for the beadle's cup. And a very hard-hearted man, besides." "'The hard-hearted, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Hard!' Mr. Bumble resigned his cup without another word, squeezed Mrs. Corney's little finger as she took it, and, inflicting two open-handed slaps upon his laced waistcoat, gave a mighty sigh, and hitched his chair a very little morsel farther from the fire. It was a round-table, and as Mrs. Corney and Mr. Bumble had been sitting opposite each other, with no great space between them, and fronting the fire, it will be seen that Mr. Bumble, in receding from the fire, and still keeping at the table, increased the distance between himself and Mrs. Corney, which proceeding some prudent readers will doubtless be disposed to admire, and to consider an act of great heroism on Mr. Bumble's part he being in some sort tempted by time, place, and opportunity, to give utterance to certain soft nothings, which, however well they may become the lips of the light and thoughtless, do seem immeasurably beneath the dignity of judges of the land, members of parliament, ministers of state, lord mayors, and other great public functionaries, but more particularly beneath the stateliness and gravity of a beadle, who, as is well known, should be the sternest and most inflexible among them all. Whatever were Mr. Bumble's intentions, however, and no doubt they were of the best, it unfortunately happened, as has been twice before remarked, that a table was a round one. Consequently, Mr. Bumble, moving his chair by little and little, soon began to diminish the distance between himself and the matron, and, continuing to travel round the outer edge of the circle, brought his chair in time close to that in which the matron was seated. Indeed the two chairs touched, and when they did so Mr. Bumble stopped. Now, if the matron had moved her chair to the right, she would have been scorched by the fire, and if to the left, she must have fallen into Mr. Bumble's arms. So, being a discreet matron, and no doubt foreseeing these consequences at a glance, she remained where she was, and handed Mr. Bumble another cup of tea. "'Hard-hearted, Mrs. Corney,' said Mr. Bumble, stirring his tea, and looking up into the matron's face. "'Are you hard-hearted, Mrs. Corney?' give me!' exclaimed the matron. What a very curious question from a single man. What can you want to know for Mr. Bumble?" The beadle drank his tea to the last drop, finished a piece of toast, whisked the crumbs off his knees, wiped his lips, and deliberately kissed the matron. —Mr. Bumble!—cried that discreet lady in a whisper, for the fright was so great that she had quite lost her voice. —Mr. Bumble!—I shall scream!—Mr. Bumble made no reply but in a slow and dignified manner put his arm round the matron's waist. As the lady had stated her intention of screaming, of course she would have screamed at this additional boldness, but that the exertion was rendered unnecessary by a hasty knocking at the door, which was no sooner heard than Mr. Bumble darted with much agility to the wine-bottles and began dusting them with great violence, while the matron sharply demanded who was there. It is worthy of remark, as a curious physical instance of the efficacy of a sudden surprise in counteracting the effects of extreme fear, that her voice had quite recovered all its official asperity. "'If you please, mistress,' said the withered old female pauper, hideously ugly, putting her head in at the door, "'old Sally is a-goin' fast.' "'Well, what's that to me?' angrily demanded the matron. "'I can't keep her alive, can I?' "No." "'No, mistress,' replied the old woman, "'nobody can. "'She's far beyond the reach of help. "'I've seen a many people die, little babies and great strong men, "'and I know when death's a-coming well enough. "'But she's troubled in her mind, and when the fits are not on her, "'and that's not often, for she's dying very hard, "'she says she's got something to tell, which you must hear. "'She'll never die quiet till you come, mistress.' At this intelligence the worthy Mrs. Corney muttered a variety of invectives against old women who couldn't even die without purposely annoying their betters, and, muffling herself in a thick shawl which she hastily caught up, briefly requested Mr. Bumble to stay till she came back, lest anything particular should occur. Bidding the messenger walk fast, and not be all night hobbling up the stairs, she followed her from the room with a very ill grace, scolding all the way. Mr. Bumble's conduct on being left to himself was rather inexplicable. He opened the closet, counted the teaspoons, weighed the sugar-tongs, closely inspected a silver milk-pot to ascertain that it was of the genuine metal, and, having satisfied his curiosity on these points, put on his cocked hat corner-wise, and danced with much gravity four distinct times round the table. Having gone through this very extraordinary performance, he took off the cocked hat again, and spreading himself before the fire with his back towards it, seemed to be mentally engaged in taking an exact inventory of the furniture. End of chapter twenty three. CHAPTER twenty four OF OLIVER TWIST BY CHARLES DICKENS TREATS ON A VERY POOR SUBJECT but is a short one, and may be found of importance in this history. It was no unfit messenger of death who had disturbed the quiet of the matron's room. Her body was bent by age, her limbs trembled with palsy, her face distorted into a mumbling near, resembled more the grotesque shaping of some wild pencil than the work of nature's hand. Alas, how few of nature's faces are left alone to gladness with their beauty! The cares and sorrows and hungerings of the world change them as they change hearts, and it is only when those passions sleep and have lost their hold for ever, that the troubled clouds pass off and leave heaven's surface clear. It is a common thing for the countenances of the dead, even in that fixed and rigid state, to subside into the long-forgotten expression of sleeping infancy, and settle into the very look of early life. So calm, so peaceful, do they grow again, that those who knew them in their happy childhood kneel by the coffin-side in awe, and see the angel even upon earth." The old crone tottered along the passages and up the stairs, muttering some indistinct answers to the chidings of her companion. Being at length compelled to pause for breath, she gave the light into her hand, and remained behind to follow as she might, while the more nimble superior made her way to the room where the sick woman lay. It was a bare garret-room, with a dim light burning at the farther end. There was another old woman, watching by the bed, the parish apothecary's apprentice was standing by the fire, making a toothpick out of a quill. "'Cold night, Mrs. Corney,' said this young gentleman, as the matron entered. "'Very cold indeed, sir,' replied the mistress, in her most civil tones, and dropping a curtsey as she spoke. "'You should get better colds out of your contractors,' said the apothecary's deputy breaking a lump on the top of the fire with the rusty poker. Oh, these are not at all the sort of thing for a cold night.' They are the board's choosing, sir,' returned the matron. The least they could do would be to keep us pretty warm, for our places are hard enough.' The conversation was here interrupted by a moan from the sick woman. "'No,' said the young man, turning his face towards the bed as if he had previously quite forgotten the patient. "'It's all up there, Mrs. Corney.' "'It is, is it, sir?' asked the matron. If she lasts a couple of hours I shall be surprised," said the apothecary's apprentice, intent upon the toothpick's point. "'It's a break-up of the system altogether. Is she dowsing, old lady?' The attendant stooped over the bed to ascertain, and nodded in the affirmative. "'Then perhaps she will go off in that way if you don't make a row,' said the young man. Put the light on the floor, she won't see it there.' The attendant did as she was told, shaking her head meanwhile to intimate that the woman would not die so easily. Having done so, she resumed her seat by the side of the other nurse, who had by this time returned. The mistress, with an expression of impatience, wrapped herself in her shawl and sat at the foot of the bed. The apothecary's apprentice, having completed the manufacture of the toothpick, planted himself in front of the fire and made good use of it for ten minutes or so, when, apparently growing rather dull, he wished Mrs Corney joy of her job and took himself off on tiptoe. When they had sat in silence for some time, the two old women rose from the bed and crouching over the fire, held out their withered hands to catch the heat. The flame threw a ghastly light on their shrivelled faces and made their ugliness appear terrible as in this position, they began to converse in a low voice. Did she say any more, Annie dear, while I was gone?" inquired the messenger. Not a word replied the other. She plucked and tore at her arms for a little time. But I held her hands, and she soon dropped off. She hasn't much strength in her, so we easily kept her quiet. I ain't so weak for an old woman, although I am on parish allowance. No, no." Did she drink the hot wine the doctor said she was to have? demanded the first. I tried to get it down, rejoined the other, but her teeth were tight-set, and she clenched the mug so hard that it was as much as I could do to get it back again. So I drank it, and it did me good looking cautiously round to ascertain that they were not overheard the two hags cowered nearer to the fire and chuckled heartily i mind the time said the first speaker when she would have done the same and made rare fun of it afterwards ay that she would rejoined the other she had a merry heart a many many beautiful corpses she laid out as nice and neat as wax-work my old eyes have seen them ay and those old hands touch them too for i have helped to scores its times stretching forth her trembling fingers as she spoke the old creature shook them exultingly before her face and fumbling in her pocket brought out an old timeless-coloured tin snuff-box from which she shook a few grains into the outstretched palm of her companion and a few more into her own while they were thus employed, the matron, who had been impatiently watching until the dying woman should awaken from her stupor, joined them by the fire, and sharply asked how long she was to wait. "'Not long, mistress,' replied the second woman, looking up into her face. "'We have none of us long to wait for death. Patience, patience. You'll be here soon enough for us all.' "'Hold your tongue, you doting idiot,' said the matron, sternly. "'You, Martha, tell me, has she been in this way before?' "'Often!' answered the first woman. "'But we'll never be again,' added the second one. "'That is, she'll never wake again but once, and mind, mistress, that won't be for long.' "'Long or short,' said the matron, snappishly, "'she won't find me here when she does wake. Take care, both of you, how you worry me again for nothing. It's no part of my duty to see all the old women in the house die, and I won't, that's more. Mind that, you impudent old harridans If you make a fool of me again, I'll soon cure you, I warrant you.' She was bouncing away when a cry from the two women, who had turned towards the bed, caused her to look round. The patient had raised herself upright, and was stretching her arms towards them. "'Who's that?' she cried in a hollow voice. "'Hush, hush!' said one of the women, stooping over her. "'Lie down, lie down!' "'I'll never lie down again alive,' said the woman, struggling. "'I will tell her. Come here, nearer, let me whisper in your ear.' She clutched the matron by the arm, and, forcing her into a chair by the bedside, was about to speak, when, looking round, she caught sight of the two old women bending forward in the attitude of eager listeners. "'Turn them away,' said the woman drowsily. "'Make haste! Make haste!' The two old crones, chiming in together, began pouring out many piteous lamentations that the poor dear was too far gone to know her best friends, and were uttering sundry protestations that they would never leave her when the superior pushed them from the room, closed the door, and returned to the bedside. On being excluded, the old ladies changed their tone, and cried through the keyhole that old Sally was drunk, which, indeed, was not unlikely, since, in addition to a moderate dose of opium prescribed by the apothecary, she was labouring under the effects of a final taste of gin and water, which had been privily administered in the openness of their hearts by the worthy old ladies themselves. "'Now, listen to me said the dying woman aloud, as if making a great effort to revive one latent spark of energy. In this very room, in this very bed, I once nursed a pretty young creature, that was brought into the house, with her feet cut and bruised with walking, and all soiled with dust and blood. She gave birth to a boy, and died. Let me think—what was the year again?" "'Never mind the year,' said the impatient auditor. What about her?" murmured the sick woman, relapsing into her former drowsy state. "'What about her—what about—I know!' she cried, jumping fiercely up, her face flushed, and her eyes starting from her head. "'I robbed her, so I did. She wasn't cold—I tell you, she wasn't cold—when I stole it!' "'Stole what, for God's sake?' cried the matron, with a gesture, as if she would call for help. "'It,' replied the woman, laying her hand over the other's mouth,—the only thing she had." She wanted clothes to keep her warm, and food to eat, but she had kept it safe, and had it in her bosom. It was gold, I tell you, rich gold, that might have saved her life.' "'Gold?' echoed the matron, bending eagerly over the woman, as she fell back. "'Go on, go on. Yes, what of it? Who was the mother? When was it?' "'She charged me to keep it safe,' replied the old woman, with a groan, "'and trusted me as the only woman about her.' i stole it in my heart when she first shouted to me hanging round her neck and the child's death perhaps is on me besides they would have treated him better had they known it all known what asked the other speak the boy grew so like his mother said the woman rambling on and not heeding the question that i could never forget it when i saw his face poor girl poor girl she was so young too such a gentle lamb "'Wait, there's more to tell. I have not told you all, have I?' "'No, no,' replied the matron, inclining her head to catch the words, as they came more faintly from the dying woman. "'Be quick, or it may be too late.' "'The mother,' said the woman, making a more violent effort than before, "'the mother, when the pains of death first came upon her, whispered in my ear that if her baby was born alive and thrived, the day might come when it would not feel so much disgrace to hear its poor young mother named.' "'And, oh kind Heaven,' she said, folding her thin hands together, "'whether it be boy or girl, raise up some friends for it in this troubled world, "'and take pity upon a lonely, desolate child, abandoned to its mercy.' "'The boy's name?' demanded the matron. "'They call him Oliver,' replied the woman feebly. "'The gold I stole was—' "'Yes, yes, what?' cried the other. She was bending eagerly over the woman to hear her reply, but drew back instinctively, as she once again rose, slowly and stiffly, into a sitting posture, then, clutching the coverlid with both hands, muttered some indistinct sounds in her throat, and fell lifeless on the bed. Stone dead!' said one of the old women, hurrying in as soon as the door was opened. "'And nothing to tell, after all,' rejoined the matron, walking carelessly away. The two clones, to all appearance, too busily occupied in preparations for the dreadful duties to make any reply, were left alone, hovering about the body. End of Chapter Twenty Four. Chapter Twenty Five of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, wherein this history reverts to Mr. Fagin and Company. While these things were passing in the country workhouse, Mr. Fagin sat in the old den the same from which Oliver had been removed by the girl, brooding over a dull, smoky fire. He held a pair of bellows upon his knee, with which he had been apparently endeavouring to rouse it into more cheerful action. But he had fallen into deep thought, and with his arms folded on them, and his chin resting on his thumbs, fixed his eyes abstractedly on the rusty bars. At a table behind him sat the artful Dodger, Master Charlie Bates and Mr. Chitling, all intent upon a game of whist—the artful taking dummy against Master Bates and Mr. Chitling. The countenance of the first-named gentleman, particularly intelligent at all times, acquired great additional interest from his close observance of the game, and his attentive perusal of Mr. Chitling's hand, upon which from time to time, as occasion served, he bestowed a variety of earnest glances wisely regulating his own play by the result of his observations upon his neighbour's cards. It being a cold night the Dodger wore his hat, as indeed was often his custom within doors. He also sustained a clay pipe between his teeth, which he only removed for a brief space when he deemed it necessary to apply for refreshment to a quart-pot upon the table, which stood ready filled with gin and water for the accommodation of the company. Master Bates was also attentive to the play, but being of a more excitable nature than his accomplished friend, it was observable that he more frequently applied himself to the gin and water, and moreover indulged in many jests and irrelevant remarks, all highly unbecoming a scientific rubber. Indeed the artful, presuming upon their close attachment, more than once took occasion to reason gravely with his companion upon these improprieties. All of which remonstrances Master Bates received an extremely good part, merely requesting his friend to be blowed, or to insert his head in a sack, or replying with some other neatly turned witticism of a similar kind, the happy application of which excited considerable admiration in the mind of Mr. Chitling. It was remarkable that the latter gentleman and his partner invariably lost. And that the circumstance, so far from angering Master Bates, appeared to afford him the highest amusement, inasmuch as he laughed most uproariously at the end of every deal, and protested that he had never seen such a jolly game in all his born days. "'That's two doubles and the rub,' said Mr. Chitling, with a very long face, as he drew half a crown from his waistcoat-pocket. "'I never see such a feller as you, Jack. You win everything.' Even when we've got cards, Charlie and I can't make nothing of em.' Either the master, or the manner of his remark, which was made very ruefully, delighted Charlie Bates so much, that his consequent shout of laughter roused the Jew from his reverie, and induced him to inquire what was the matter. "'Matter, Fagin!' cried Charlie, "'I wish you had watched the play. Tommy Chitling hasn't won a point, and I went partners with him against the artful and dumb. Ay, ay," said the Jew, with a grin, which sufficiently demonstrated that he was at no loss to understand the reason. "'Try him again, Tom, try him again.' "'No more of it for me, thanky Fagin,' replied Mr. Chitling. "'I've had enough. That ere dodger has such a run of luck that there's no standing again him.' "'Ha, <laughs> ha, my dear,' replied the Jew, "'you must get up very early in the morning to win against the dodger.' "'Morning,' said Charlie Bates, "'you must put your boots on over night, and have a telescope at each eye, and an opera-glass between your shoulders, if you want to come over him.' Mr. Dawkins received these handsome compliments with much philosophy, and offered to cut any gentleman in company for the first picture-card, at a shilling a time. Nobody accepted the challenge, and, his pipe being by this time smoked out, he proceeded to amuse himself by sketching a ground-plan of Newgate. On the table with a piece of chalk which had served him in lieu of counters, whistling meantime with particular shrillness. "'How precious dull you are, Tommy!' said the Dodger, stopping short, when there had been a long silence, and addressing Mr. Chitling. "'What do you think he's thinking of Fagin?' "'How should I know, my dear?' replied the Jew, looking round, as he plied the bellows. "'About his losses, maybe.' "'of the little retirement in the country that is just left, eh? (laughs) "'That's it, my dear.' "'Not a bit of it,' replied the Dodger, stopping the subject of discourse as Mr. Chitling was about to reply. "'What do you say, Charlie?' "'I should say,' replied Master Bates with a grin, "'that he was uncommon sweet upon Betsy. "'See how he's a-blushing? Oh, my eye, there's a merry-go-rounder. "'Tommy Chitling's in love. Oh, Fagin, Fagin, what a spree!' Thoroughly overpowered with the notion of Mr. Chitling being the victim of the tender passion, Master Bates threw himself back in his chair with such violence that he lost his balance, and pitched over upon the floor, where, the accident, debating nothing of his merriment, he lay at full length until his laugh was over, and then he resumed his former position and began another laugh. "'Never mind him, my dear,' said the Jew, winking at Mr. Dawkins, and giving Master Bates a reproving tap with the nozzle of the bellows. "'Betsy's a fine girl. Stick up to her, Tom, stick up to her.' "'What I mean to say, Fagin,' replied Mr. Chitling, very red in the face, "'is that it isn't anything to anybody here.' "'No more it is,' replied the Jew. "'Charlie will talk. Don't mind him, my dear, don't mind him. Betsy's a fine girl.' Do as she bids you, Tom, and you will make your fortune.' "'So I do do as she bids me,' replied Mr. Chitling. "'I shouldn't have been milled if it hadn't been for her advice. But it turned out a good job for you, didn't it, Fagin? And what six weeks of it? It must come some time or another. And why not in the winter-time, when you don't want to go out a walking so much, eh, Fagin?' "'Ah, to be sure, my dear,' replied the Jew. "'You wouldn't mind it again, Tom, would you?' asked the Dodger, winking upon Charlie and the Jew, "'if Bet was all right.' "'I mean to say that I shouldn't,' replied Tom angrily. "'There now, ah, who'd say as much as that I should like to know, eh, Fagin?' "'Nobody, my dear,' replied the Jew. "'Not a soul, Tom. I don't know one of that would do it besides you. Not one of them, my dear.' "'I might have got clear off if I'd split upon her, mightn't I, Fagin?' angrily pursued the poor half-witted dupe. "'A word for me would have done it, wouldn't it, Fagin?' "'To be sure it would, my dear,' replied the Jew. "'But I didn't blab, did I, Fagin?' demanded Tom, pouring question upon question with great volubility no no to be sure replied the jew you are too stout-hearted for that a deal too stout-hearted my dear Perhaps i was rejoined tom looking round and if i was what's to laugh at in that eh the jew perceiving that mr chitling was considerably roused hastened to assure him that nobody was laughing and to prove the gravity of the company appealed to master bates the principal offender But, unfortunately, Charlie, in opening his mouth to reply that he was never more serious in his life, was unable to prevent the escape of such a violent roar, that the abused Mr. Chitling, without any preliminary ceremonies, rushed across the room and aimed a blow at the offender, who, being skilful in evading pursuit, ducked to avoid it, and chose his time so well that it lighted on the chest of the merry old gentleman, and caused him to stagger to the wall where he stood panting for breath, while Mr. Chitling looked on in intense dismay. The cried the dodger at this moment. "'I the tinkler!' Catching up the light, he crept softly upstairs. The bell was rung again with some impatience while the party were in darkness. After a short pause the dodger reappeared and whispered Fagin mysteriously. "'What!' cried the Jew. "Alone." The dodger nodded in the affirmative and, shading the flame of the candle with his hand, gave Charlie Bates a private intimation, in dumb show, that he had better not be funny just then. Having performed this friendly office, he fixed his eyes on the Jew's face and awaited his directions. The old man bit his yellow fingers and meditated for some seconds, his face working with agitation the while as if he dreaded something and feared to know the worst. At length he raised his head. "'Where is he?' He asked the Dodger pointed to the floor above and made a gesture as if to leave the room Yes, said the Jew answering the mute inquiry bring him down Hush quiet Charlie gently Tom This brief direction to Charlie Bates and his recent antagonist was softly and immediately obeyed there was no sound of their whereabout when the dodger descended the stairs bearing the light in his hand and followed by a man in a coarse smock frock, who, after casting a hurried glance round the room, pulled off a large wrapper which had concealed the lower portion of his face, and disclosed all haggard, unwashed, and unshorn the features of Flash Toby Crackett. How are you, Faggy? said this worthy, nodding to the Jew. Pop that shawl away in my caster, Dodger, so that I may know where to find it when I cut. That's the time of day. You'll be a fine young cracksman afore the old foil now.' With these words he pulled up the smock frock and, winding it round his middle, drew a chair to the fire and placed his feet upon the hob. "'See here, Faggy," he said, pointing disconsolately to his top-boots, "'not a drop of day and martin since you know when, not a bubble of blacking by Jove.' But don't look at me in that way, man-all in good time. I can't talk about business till I've had eat and drink, so produce the sustenance, and let's have a quiet fill-out for the first time in these three days. The Jew motioned to the Dodger to place what eatables there were upon the table, and seating himself opposite the housebreaker, waited his leisure. To judge from appearances, Toby was by no means in a hurry to open the conversation. At first the Jew contented himself with patiently watching his countenance, as if to gain from its expression some clue to the intelligence he brought, but in vain. He looked tired and worn, but there was the same complacent repose upon his features that they always wore, and through dirt and beard and whisker there still shone, unimpaired, the self-satisfied smirk of flash Toby Cracket. Then the Jew, in an agony of impatience, watched every morsel he put into his mouth, pacing up and down the room meanwhile in irrepressible excitement. It was all of no use. Toby continued to eat with the utmost outward indifference, until he could eat no more. Then ordering the dodger out, he closed the door, mixed a glass of spirits and water, and composed himself for talking. First and foremost, Faggy,' said Toby. "'Yes, yes,' interposed the Jew, drawing up his chair. Mr. Crackett stopped to take a draught of spirits and water, and to declare that the gin was excellent. Then, placing his feet against the low mantelpiece, so as to bring his boots to about the level of his eye, he quietly resumed. First and foremost, Fagy,' said the housebreaker, I "'how's Bill?' "'What?' screamed the Jew, starting from his seat. "'Why, you don't mean to say,' began Toby, turning pale. "'Mean!' cried the Jew, stamping furiously on the ground. "'Where are they? Sikes and the boy, where are they? Where have they been? Where are they hiding? Why have they not been here?' The crack failed," said Toby, faintly. "'I know it,' replied the Jew, tearing a newspaper from his pocket and pointing to it. "'What more?' They fired and hit the boy. We cut over the fields at the back, with him between us, straight as the crow flies through hedge and ditch. They gave chase. Damn, the whole country was awake, and the dogs upon us. The boy! Bill had him on his back, and scudded like the wind. We stopped to take him between us, his head hung down, and he was cold. They were close upon our heels, every man for himself, and each from the gallows. We parted company, and left the youngster lying in a ditch. Alive or dead, that's all I know about him." The Jew stopped to hear no more, but uttering a loud yell and twining his hands in his hair, rushed from the room and from the house. End of chapter twenty five. Chapter twenty six of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. In which a mysterious character appears upon the scene, and many things, inseparable from this history, are done and performed. The old man had gained the street-corner before he began to recover the effect of Toby Crackett's intelligence. He had relaxed nothing of his unusual speed, but was still pressing onward in the same wild and disordered manner, when the sudden dashing past of a carriage, and a boisterous cry from the foot-passengers, who saw his danger, drove him back upon the pavement. Avoiding as much as possible all the main streets, and skulking only through the byways and alleys, he at length emerged on Snow Hill. Here he walked even faster than before, nor did he linger until he had again turned into a court, when, as if conscious that he was now in his proper element, he fell into his usual shuffling pace, and seemed to breathe more freely. Near to the spot on which Snow Hill and Holborn Hill meet, opens upon the right hand as you come out of the city a narrow and dismal alley, leading to Saffron Hill. In its filthy shops are exposed for sale huge bunches of second-hand silk handkerchiefs, of all sizes and patterns, for here reside the traders who purchase them from pig-pockets. Hundreds of these handkerchiefs hang dangling from pegs outside the windows, or flaunting from the door-posts, and the shelves within are piled with them. Confined as the limits of Field Lane are, it has its barber, its coffee-shop, its beer-shop, and its fried-fish warehouse. It is a commercial colony of itself, the emporium of petty larceny visited at early morning, and setting in of dusk, by silent merchants, who traffic in dark back parlours, and who go as strangely as they come. Here the clothesman, the shoe-vamper, and the rag-merchant display their goods as sign-boards to the petty thief. Here stores of old iron and bones, and heaps of mildewy fragments of woollen stuff and linen, rust and rot in the grimy cellars. It was into this place that the Jew turned. He was well known to the sallow denizens of the lane, for such of them as were on the lookout to buy or sell nodded familiarly as he passed along. He replied to their salutations in the same way, but bestowed no closer recognition until he reached the further end of the alley, when he stopped to address a salesman of small stature, who had squeezed as much of his person into a child's chair as the chair would hold, and was smoking a pipe at his warehouse door why the sight of you mr fagin would cure the hop to me said this respectable trader in acknowledgment of the Jew's inquiry after his health the neighbourhood was a little too hot lively said fagin elevating his eyebrows and crossing his hands upon his shoulders well i've heard that complained of once or twice before replied the trader but it soon cools down again don't you find it so fagin nodded in the affirmative Pointing in the direction of Saffron Hill, he inquired whether any one was up yonder to-night. "'At the cripples,' inquired the man. The Jew nodded. "'Let me see,' pursued the merchant, reflecting. "'Yes, there are some half-dozen of them gone in that I knows. I don't think your friend's there.' "'Sikes is not, I suppose,' inquired the Jew, with a disappointed countenance. "'None is tuintus, as the lawyers say,' replied the little man, shaking his head, and looking amazingly shy. "'Have you got anything in my line to-night?' "'Nothing to-night,' said the Jew, turning away. "'Are you going up to the cripples, Fagin?' cried the little man, calling after him. "'Stop! I don't mind if I have a drop there with you.' But as the Jew, looking back, waved his hand to intimate that he preferred being alone, and moreover, as the little man could not very easily disengage himself from the chair, the sign of the cripples was, for a time, bereft of the advantage of Mr. Lively's presence. By the time he had got upon his legs the Jew had disappeared, so Mr. Lively, after ineffectually standing on tiptoe, in the hope of catching sight of him, again forced himself into the little chair, and exchanging a shake of the head with a lady in the opposite shop, in which doubt and mistrust were plainly mingled, resumed his pipe with grave demeanour. The three cripples, or rather the cripples, which was the sign by which the establishment was familiarly known to its patrons, was the public-house in which Mr. Sykes and his dog have already figured. Merely making a sign to a man at the bar, Fagin walked straight upstairs, and opening the door of a room, and softly insinuating himself into the chamber, looked anxiously about, shading his eyes with his hand as if in search for some particular person. The room was illuminated by two gas-lights, the glare of which was prevented by the barred shutters and closely drawn curtains of faded red from being visible outside. The ceiling was blackened to prevent its colour from being injured by the flaring of the lamps, and the place was so full of dense tobacco-smoke, that at first it was scarcely possible to discern anything more. By degrees, however, as some of it cleared away through the open door, an assemblage of heads as confused as the noises that greeted the ear might be made out, and as the eye grew more accustomed to the scene, The spectator gradually became aware of the presence of a numerous company, male and female, crowded round a long table, at the upper end of which sat a chairman with a hammer of office in his hand, while a professional gentleman with a bluish nose, and his face tied up for the benefit of a toothache, presided at a jingling piano in a remote corner. As Fagin stepped softly in, the professional gentleman running over the keys by way of prelude, occasioned a general cry of order for a song which having subsided, a young lady proceeded to entertain the company with a ballad in four verses, between each of which the accompanist played the melody all through, as loud as he could. When this was over, the chairman gave a sentiment, after which the professional gentleman on the chairman's right and left volunteered a duet, and sang it with great applause. It was curious to observe some faces which stood out prominently from among the group. There was the chairman himself, the landlord of the house, a coarse, rough, heavy-built fellow, who, while the songs were proceeding, rolled his eyes hither and thither, and, seeming to give himself up to joviality, had an eye for everything that was done, and an ear for everything that was said, and sharp ones, too. Near him were the singers, receiving with professional indifference the compliments of the company, and applying themselves, in turn, to a dozen proffered glasses of spirits and water tendered by their more boisterous admirers, whose countenances, expressive of almost every vice in almost every grade, irresistibly attracted the attention by their very repulsiveness. Cunning, ferocity, and drunkenness in all its stages were there in their strongest aspect, and women, some with the last lingering tinge of their early freshness almost fading as you looked, others with every mark and stamp of their sex utterly beaten out, and presenting but one loathsome blank of profligacy and crime, some mere girls, others but young women, and none past the prime of life, form the darkest and saddest portion of this dreary picture. Fagin, troubled by no grave emotions, looked eagerly from face to face while these proceedings were in progress, but apparently without meeting that of which he was in search. Succeeding at length in catching the eye of the man who occupied the chair, he beckoned to him slightly, and left the room as quietly as he had entered it. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Fagin?' inquired the man, as he followed him out to the landing. "'Won't you join us? They'll be delighted, every one of them.' The Jew shook his head impatiently, and said in a whisper, "'Is he here?' "'No,' replied the man. "And no news of Barney?' inquired Fagin. None, replied the landlord of the cripples, for it was he. He won't stir till old safe. Depend upon it, they're on the scent down there, and that if he moved he'd blow upon the thing at once. He's all right enough, Barney is, else I should have heard of him. I've pounded that Barney's managing properly, let him alone for that. Will he be here tonight? asked the Jew, laying the same emphasis on the pronoun as before. Monks, do you mean? inquired the landlord, hesitating. Hush said the Jew, "'Yes.' "'Certain,' replied the man, drawing a gold watch from his fob. "'I expected him here before now. If you wait ten minutes, he'll be.' "'No, no,' said the Jew, hastily, as though however desirous he might be to see the person in question. He was nevertheless relieved by his absence. "'Tell him I came here to see him, and that he must come to me to-night. No, say to-morrow night. As he is not here, to-morrow will be time enough.' "'Good,' said the man. "'Nothing more?' "'Not a word now,' said the Jew, descending the stairs. "'I say,' said the other, looking over the rails and speaking in a hoarse whisper, "'what a time this would be for a cell! I've got Phil Barker here so drunk that a boy might take him!' "'Ah, but it's not Phil Barker's time,' said the Jew, looking up. "'Phil has something more to do before we can afford to part with him. So, go back to the company, my dear, and tell them to lead merry lives for the last <laughs> The landlord reciprocated the old man's laugh and returned to his guests. The Jew was no sooner alone than his countenance resumed its former expression of anxiety and thought. after a brief reflection, he called a hack cabriolet and bade the man drive towards Bethnal Green. He dismissed him within some quarter of a mile of Mr. Sykes's residence, and performed the short remainder of the distance on foot. "'Now,' muttered the Jew, as he knocked at the door, "'if there's any deep play here, I shall have it out of you, my girl, cunning as you are.' She was in her room, the woman said. Fagin crept softly upstairs, and entered it without any previous ceremony. The girl was alone, lying with her head upon the table, and her hair straggling over it. She has been drinking, thought the Jew, coolly. Or perhaps she's only miserable. The old man turned to close the door as he made this reflection. The noise, thus occasioned, roused the girl. She eyed his crafty face narrowly, as she inquired to his recital of Toby Crackett's story. When it was concluded she sank into her former attitude, but spoke not a word. She pushed the candle impatiently away, and once or twice, as she feverishly changed her position, shuffled her feet upon the ground. But this was all. During the silence the Jew looked restlessly about the room, as if to assure himself that there were no appearances of Sykes having covertly returned. Apparently satisfied with his inspection, he coughed twice or thrice, and made as many efforts to open a conversation. But the girl heeded him no more than if he had been made of stone. At length he made another attempt, and rubbing his hands together said, in his most conciliatory tone. "'And where should you think Bill was now, my dear?' The girl moaned out some half-intelligible reply that she could not tell, and seemed, from the smothered noise that escaped her, to be crying. "'And the boy too,' said the Jew, straining his eyes to catch a glimpse of her face. "'Poor little child! Left in a ditch, Nance! Only think!' "'The child,' said the girl, suddenly looking up, is better where he is than among us, and if no harm comes to Bill from it, I hope he lies dead in the ditch, and that his young bones may rot there.' "'What?' cried the Jew, in amazement. "'Aye, I do,' returned the girl, meeting his gaze. "'I shall be glad to have him away from my eyes, and to know that the worst is over. I can't bear to have him about me. The sight of him turns me against myself and all of you.' "'Poo!' said the Jew, scornfully. "'You're drunk!' am i cried the girl bitterly it's no fault of yours if i am not you'd never have me anything else if you had your will except now the humour doesn't suit you doesn't it no rejoined the jew furiously it does not change it then responded the girl with a laugh change it exclaimed the jew exasperated beyond all bounds by his companion's unexpected obstinacy and the vexation of the night i will change it listen to me you drab "'Listen to me, who, with six words, can strangle Sykes as surely as if I had his bull's throat between my fingers now. If he comes back and leaves the boy behind him, if he gets all free and, dead or alive, fails to restore him to me, murder him yourself if you would have him escape, Jack Ketch, and do it the moment he sets foot in this room, or, mind me, it will be too late.' "'What is all this?' cried the girl involuntarily. "'What is it?' pursued Fagin, mad with rage when the boy's worth hundreds of pounds to me am i to lose what chance threw me in the way of getting safely through the whims of a drunken gang that i could whistle away the lies of and me bound too to a born devil that only wants the will and has the power to-to panting for breath the old man stammered for a word and in that instant checked the torrent of his wrath and changed his whole demeanour a moment before his clenched hands had grasped the air His eyes had dilated, and his face grown livid with passion, but now he shrunk into a chair, and, cowering together, trembled with the apprehension of having himself disclosed some hidden villainy. After a short silence he ventured to look round at his companion. He appeared somewhat reassured on beholding her in the same listless attitude from which he had first roused her. "'Nancy, dear,' croaked the Jew, in his usual voice, "'do you mind, me dear?' "'Don't worry me now, Fagin,' replied the girl, raising her head languidly. "'If Bill has not done it this time, he will another. He has done many a good job for you, and will do many more when he can. And when he can't, he won't. So no more about that.' "'Regarding this boy, my dear,' said the Jew, rubbing the palms of his hands nervously together, "'the boy must take his chance with the rest,' interrupted Nancy, hastily. And I say again, I hope he's dead, and out of arm's way, and out of yours, that is, if Bill comes to no harm. And if Toby's got clear off, Bill's pretty sure to be safe, for Bill's worth two of Toby any time.' "'And about what I was saying, my dear,' observed the Jew, keeping his glistening eyes steadily upon her. "'You must say it all over again, if it's anything you want me to do,' rejoined Nancy. "'And if it is, you had better wait till to-morrow. You put me up for a minute, but now I'm stupid again.' Fagin put several other questions, all with the same drift of ascertaining whether the girl had profited by his unguarded hints. But she answered them so readily, and was withal so utterly unmoved by his searching looks, that his original impression of her being more than a trifle in liquor was confirmed. Nancy, indeed, was not exempt from a failing which was very common among the Jew's female pupils, and in which, in their tenderer years, they were rather encouraged than checked her disordered appearance and the wholesale perfume of geneva which pervaded the apartment afforded strong confirmatory evidence of the justice of the jew's supposition and when after indulging in the temporary display of violence above described she subsided first into dullness and afterwards into a compound of feelings Under the influence of which she shed tears one minute, and the next gave utterance to various exclamations of never say die, and diverse calculations as to what be the amount of the odds so long as a lady or gentleman was happy, Mr. Fagin, who had had considerable experience of such matters in his time, saw with great satisfaction that she was very far gone indeed. Having eased his mind by this discovery, and having accomplished his twofold object of imparting to the girl what he had that night heard, and of ascertaining, with his own eyes, that Sykes had not returned, Mr. Fagin again turned his face homeward, leaving his young friend asleep with her head upon the table. It was within an hour of midnight, the weather being dark and piercing cold, he had no great temptation to loiter. The sharp wind that scoured the streets seemed to have cleared them of passengers as of dust and mud, for few people were abroad, and they were to all appearance hastening fast home. It blew from the right quarter for the Jew, however, and straight before it he went, trembling and shivering as every fresh gust drove him rudely on his way. He had reached the corner of his own street, and was already fumbling in his pocket for the door-key, when a dark figure emerged from a projecting entrance which lay deep in shadow and, crossing the road, glided up to him unperceived. Fagin whispered a voice close to his ear. "'Ah!' said the Jew, turning quickly around. "'Is that—' "'Yes,' interrupted the stranger. "'I have been lingering here these two hours. Where the devil have you been?' "'On your business, my dear,' replied the Jew, glancing uneasily at his companion, and slackening his pace as he spoke. "'On your business all night.' "'Oh, of course,' said the stranger, with a sneer. "'Well, and what's come of it?' "'Nothing good,' said the Jew." "'Nothing bad, I hope," said the stranger, stopping short, and turning a startled look upon his companion. The Jew shook his head, and was about to reply, when the stranger, interrupting him, motioned to the house before which they had by this time arrived, remarking that he had better say what he had got to say under cover, for his blood was chilled with standing about so long, and the wind blew through him. Fagin looked as if he could have willingly excused himself from taking home a visitor at that unreasonable hour, and indeed muttered something about having no fire. But his companion, repeating his request in a peremptory manner, he unlocked the door, and requested him to close it softly, while he got a light. "'It's as dark as the grave,' said the man, groping forward a few steps. "'Make haste!' "'Shut the door,' whispered Fagin from the end of the passage. As he spoke, it closed with a loud noise it wasn't my doing said the other man feeling his way the wind blew it too or it shut of its own accord one or the other look sharp with the light or i shall knock my brains out against something in this confounded hole fagin stealthily descended the kitchen stairs after a short absence he returned with a lighted candle and the intelligence that toby crackit was asleep in the back room below and that the boys were in the front one beckoning the man to follow him he led the way upstairs we can say the few words we've got to say in here my dear said the jew throwing open a door on the first floor and as there are holes in the shutters and we never show lights to our neighbours we'll set the candle on the stairs there with those words the jew stooping down placed the candle on an upper flight of stairs exactly opposite to the room door this done he led the way into the apartment which was destitute of all moveables save a broken arm-chair and an old couch or sofa without covering, which stood behind the door. Upon this piece of furniture the stranger sat himself with the air of a weary man, and the Jew drawing up the armchair opposite, they sat face to face. It was not quite dark, the door was partially open, and the candle outside threw a feeble reflection on the opposite wall. They conversed for some time in whispers, though nothing of the conversation was distinguishable beyond a few disjointed words here and there a listener might easily have perceived that Fagin appeared to be defending himself against some remarks of the stranger, and that the latter was in a state of considerable irritation. They might have been talking thus for a quarter of an hour or more, when monks, by which name the Jew had designated the strange man several times in the course of their colloquy, said, raising his voice a little, "'I tell you again, it was badly planned. Why not have kept him here among the rest, and made a sneaking, snivelling pickpocket of him at once?' only hear him exclaimed the jew shrugging his shoulders why do you mean to say you couldn't have done it if you'd chosen demanded monks sternly haven't you done it with other boys scores of times if you had had patience for a twelvemonth at most couldn't you have got him convicted and sent safely out of the kingdom perhaps for life whose turn would that have served my dear inquired the jew humbly mine replied monks but not mine said the jew submissively he might have become of use to me when there are two parties to a bargain, it is only reasonable that the interests of both should be consulted. Is it my good friend?' ''What then?'' demanded Monks. ''I saw it was not easy to train him to the business,'' replied the Jew. ''It was not like the other boys, in the same circumstances.'' ''Curse him now,'' muttered the man, ''or he would have been a thief long ago.'' ''I had no hold upon him to make him worse,'' pursued the Jew, anxiously watching the countenance of his companion. His hand was not in. I had nothing to frighten him with, which we always must have in the beginning, or we labour in vain. What could I do, send him out with the Dodger and Charlie? We had enough of that at first, my dear, I trembled for us all.' "'That was not my doing,' observed Monks. "'No, no, my dear,' renewed the Jew. "'And I don't quarrel with it now, because if it had never happened, you might never have clapped eyes upon the boy to notice him.' and so led to the discovery that it was him you were looking for. Well, I got him back for you by means of the girl, and then she begins to favour him." "'Throttle the girl,' said Monks impatiently. "'Why, we can't afford to do that just now, my dear,' replied the Jew, smiling. "'And besides, that sort of thing is not in our way. Or one of these days I might be glad to have it done. I know what these girls are, Monks, well.' As soon as the boy begins to harden, she care no more for him than for a block of wood. You want him made a thief? If he is alive, I can make him one from this time. And if—if, if, said a Jew, drawing nearer to the other, it's not likely, mind. But if the worst comes to the worst, and he is dead—' It's no fault of mine if he is, interposed the other man with a look of terror, and clasping the Jew's arm with trembling hands. Mind that, Fagin, I had no hand in it anything but his death i told you from the first i won't shed blood is always found out and a haunts a man besides if they shot him dead i was not the cause do you hear me fire this internal den what's that what cried the Jew grasping the coward round the body with both arms as he sprung to his feet where yonder replied the man glaring at the opposite wall the shadow i saw the shadow of a woman in a cloak and bonnet pass along the wainscot like a breath the Jew released his hold and they rushed tumultuously from the room The candle wasted by the draught was standing where it had been placed. It showed them only the empty staircase and their own white faces. They listened intently. A profound silence reigned throughout the house. "'It's your fancy,' said the Jew, taking up the light and turning to his companion. "'I'll swear I saw it,' replied Monks, trembling. "'It was bending forward when I saw it first, and when I spoke it darted away.' The Jew glanced contemptuously at the pale face of his associate and telling him he could follow, if he pleased, ascended the stairs. They looked into all the rooms. They were cold, bare and empty. They descended into the passage, and thence into the cellars below. The green damp hung upon the low walls. The tracks of the snail and slug glistened in the light of the candle, but all was still as death. "'What do you think now?' said the Jew, when they had regained the passage. "'Besides ourselves there's not a creature in the house except Toby and the boys. They're safe enough. See here.' As a proof of the fact, the Jew drew forth two keys from his pocket, and explained that when he first went downstairs he had locked them in to prevent any intrusion on the conference. This accumulated testimony effectually staggered Mr. Monks. His protestations had gradually become less and less vehement as they proceeded in their search without making any discovery, and now he gave vent to several very grim laughs, and confessed it could only have been his excited imagination. He declined any renewal of the conversation, however, for that night, suddenly remembering that it was past one o'clock, and so the amiable couple parted. End of chapter twenty six. Chapter twenty seven of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Atones for the unpoliteness of a former chapter, which deserted a lady most unceremoniously as it would be by no means seemly in a humble author to keep so mighty a personage as a beadle waiting with his back to the fire and the skirts of his coat gathered up under his arms until such time as it might suit his pleasure to relieve him and as it would still less become his station or his gallantry to involve in the same neglect a lady on whom that beadle had looked with an eye of tenderness and affection and in whose ear he had whispered sweet words which coming from such a quarter might well thrill the bosom of a maid or matron of whatsoever degree the historian whose pen traces these words trusting that he knows his place and that he entertains a becoming reverence for those upon earth to whom high and important authority is delegated hastens to pay them that respect which their position demands, and to treat them with all that duteous ceremony which their exalted rank, and by consequence great virtues, imperatively claim at his hands. Towards this end, indeed, he had proposed to introduce, in this place, a dissertation touching the divine right of beadles, and elucidative of the position that a beadle can do no wrong which could not fail to have been both pleasurable and profitable to the right-minded reader, but which he is unfortunately compelled, by want of time and space, to postpone to some more convenient and fitting opportunity, on the arrival of which he will be prepared to show that a beadle properly constituted, that is to say, a parochial beadle attached to a parochial workhouse, and attending in his official capacity the parochial church, is, in right and virtue of his office, possessed of all the excellences and best qualities of humanity, and that to none of those excellences can mere company's beadles, or court of law beadles, or even chapel of ease beadles, save the last, and they in a very lowly and inferior degree, lay the remotest sustainable claim mr bumble had recounted the teaspoons reweighed the sugar-tongs made a closer inspection of the milk-pot and ascertained to a nicety the exact condition of the furniture down to the very horsehair seats of the chairs and had repeated each process full half-a-dozen times before he began to think that it was time for mrs corney to return thinking begets thinking as there were no sounds of mrs corney's approach it occurred to mr bumble that it would be an innocent and virtuous way of spending the time if he were further to allay his curiosity by a cursory glance at the interior of Mrs. Corney's chest of drawers. Having listened at the keyhole to assure himself that nobody was approaching the chamber, Mr. Bumble, beginning at the bottom, proceeded to make himself acquainted with the contents of the three long drawers, which, being filled with various garments of good fashion and texture, carefully preserved between two layers of old newspaper, speckled with dried lavender, seemed to yield him exceeding satisfaction arriving in course of time at the right-hand corner drawer, in which was the key, and beholding therein a small padlocked box, which being shaken gave forth a pleasant sound as of the clinking of coin. Mr. Bumble returned with a stately walk to the fireplace, and, resuming his old attitude, said, with a grave and determined air, "'I'll do it.' He followed up this remarkable declaration by shaking his head in a waggish manner for ten minutes, as though he were remonstrating with himself for being such a pleasant dog and then he took a view of his legs in profile with much seeming pleasure and interest he was still placidly engaged in this latter survey when mrs corney hurrying into the room threw herself in a breathless state on a chair by the fireside and covering her eyes with one hand placed the other over her heart and gasped for breath mrs corney said mr bumble stooping over the matron what is this ma'am has anything happened ma'am pray answer me i'm on on. Mr. Bumble, in his alarm, could not immediately think of the word tenterhooks. So he said, "'Broken bottles!' "'Oh, Mr. Bumble,' cried the lady, "'I have been so dreadfully put out.' "'Put out, ma'am?' exclaimed Mr. Bumble. "Who was dared to.' "'I know,' said Mr. Bumble, checking himself with native majesty. "'It's them wishes paupers, "'It's dreadful to think of,' said the lady, shuddering. "'Then don't think of it, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble. "'I can't help it,' whimpered the lady. "'Then take something, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble, soothingly. "'A little of the wine.' "'Not for the world,' replied Mrs. Corney. "'I couldn't. Oh! The top shelf in the right-hand corner. Oh!' Uttering these words, the good lady pointed distractedly to the cupboard, and underwent a convulsion from internal spasms. Mr. Bumble rushed to the closet and snatching a pint-green glass bottle from the shelf thus incoherently indicated, filled a teacup with its contents, and held it to the lady's lips. "'I'm better now,' said Mrs. Corney, falling back after drinking half of it. Mr. Bumble raised his eyes piously to the ceiling in thankfulness, and bringing them down again to the brim of the cup, lifted it to his nose. "'Peppermint!' exclaimed Mrs. Corney, in a faint voice, smiling gently on the beadle as she spoke. "'Try it. There's a little—a little something else in it." Mr. Bumble tasted the medicine with a doubtful look, smacked his lips, took another taste, and put the cup down, empty. "'It's very comforting,' said Mrs. Corney. "'Very much so, indeed, ma'am,' said the beadle. As he spoke he drew a chair beside the matron, and tenderly inquired what had happened to distress her. "'Nothing,' replied Mrs. Corney. "'I am a foolish, excitable, weak creature. "'Not weak, ma'am,' retorted the Bumble, drawing his chair a little closer. "'Are you a weak creature, Mrs. Corney?' "'We are all weak creatures,' said Mrs. Corney, laying down a general principle. "'So we are,' said the beadle. Nothing was said on either side for a minute or two afterwards. By the expiration of that time Mr. Bumble had illustrated the position by removing his left arm from the back of Mrs. Corney's chair, where it had previously rested, to Mrs. Corney's apron string round which it gradually became entwined "we are all weak creatures" said Mr Bumble "Mrs Corney sighed "don't sigh Mrs Corney" said Mr Bumble "i can't help it" said Mrs Corney and she sighed again "this is a very comfortable room ma'am" said Mr Bumble looking round "another room and this ma'am would be a complete thing it would be too much for one" murmured the lady. "'But not for two, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble in soft accents. "Eh, Mrs. Corney?' Mrs. Corney drooped her head when the beadle said this. The beadle drooped his to get a view of Mrs. Corney's face. Mrs. Corney with great propriety turned her head away, and released her hand to get at her pocket-handkerchief, but insensibly replaced it in that of Mr. Bumble. "'The board allows you coals, don't they, Mrs. Corney?' inquired the beadle, affectionately pressing her hand. "'And candles?' replied Mrs. Corney, slightly returning the pressure. "'Cowls, candles, and a house rent-free,' said Mr. Bumble. Now, Mrs. Corney, what an angel you are!' The lady was not proof against this burst of feeling. She sank into Mr. Bumble's arms, and that gentleman, in his agitation, imprinted a passionate kiss upon her chaste nose. "'Such parochial perfection!' exclaimed Mr. Bumble rapturously. "'You know that Mr. Slout is worse to-night, my fascinator?' "'Yes,' replied Mrs. Corney bashfully. "'He can't live a week, the doctors say,' pursued Mr. Bumble. "'He is the master of this establishment. "'His death will cause a vacancy. "'That vacancy must be filled up. "'Oh, Mrs. Corney, what a prospect this opens! "'What a opportunity for a joining of hearts and housekeepings!" mrs corney sobbed the little word said mr bumble bending over the bashful beauty the one little 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 word my blessed corney yes sighed out the matron one more pursued the beadle compose your darling feelings for only one more when is it to come off mrs corney twice essayed to speak and twice failed At length, summoning up courage, she threw her arms round Mr. Bumble's neck, and said it might be as soon as ever he pleased, and that he was a irresistible duck. Matters being thus amicably and satisfactorily arranged, the contract was solemnly ratified in another teacupful of the peppermint mixture, which was rendered the more necessary by the flutter and agitation of the lady's spirits. While it was being disposed of, she acquainted Mr. Bumble with the old woman's decease. "'Very good.' said so that gentleman, sipping his peppermint, I'll call at Sowerberry's as I go home and tell him to send tomorrow morning. Was it that as frightened you, love? It wasn't anything particular, dear, said the lady evasively. It must have been something, love, urged mr Bumble. Won't you tell your own bee? Not now, rejoined the lady. One of these days, after we are married, dear. After we are married, exclaimed mr Bumble. "'It wasn't any imprudence from any of them male paupers, as "'No, no, love,' interposed the lady, hastily. "'If I thought it was,' continued Mr. Bumble, "'if I thought as any one of them had dared lift his vulgar eyes to that lovely countenance.' "'They wouldn't have dared to do it, love,' responded the lady. "'They had better not,' said Mr. Bumble, clenching his fist. "'Let me see any man parochial or extra-parochial, as would presume to do it, "'and I can tell him that he wouldn't do it a second time.' Unembellished by any violence of gesticulation, this might have seemed not a very high compliment to the lady's charms, but as Mr. Bumble accompanied the threat with many warlike gestures, she was much touched with this proof of his devotion, and protested with great admiration that he was indeed a dove. The dove then turned up his coat-collar, put on his cocked hat, and having exchanged a long and affectionate embrace with his future partner, once again braved the cold wind of the night, merely pausing for a few minutes in the male pauper's ward, to abuse them a little, with a view of satisfying himself that he could fill the office of workhouse master with needful acerbity. Assured of his qualifications, Mr. Bumble left the building with a light heart, and bright visions of his future promotion, which served to occupy his mind until he reached the shop of the undertaker. Now Mr. and Mrs. Sowerberry having gone out to tea and supper, and Noah Claypole not being at any time disposed to take upon himself a greater amount of physical exertion than is necessary to a convenient performance of the two functions of eating and drinking, the shop was not closed, although it was past the usual hour of shutting up. Mr. Bumble tapped with his cane on the counter several times, but attracting no attention, and beholding a light shining through the glass window of the little parlour at the back of the shop. He made bold to peep in and see what was going forward. And when he saw what was going forward, he was not a little surprised. The cloth was laid for supper, the table was covered with bread and butter, plates and glasses, a porter-pot and a wine-bottle. At the upper end of the table Mr. Noah Claypole lolled negligently in an easy-chair, with his legs thrown over one of the arms, an open clasp-knife in one hand, and a mass of buttered bread in the other. Close beside him stood Charlotte, opening oysters from a barrel which Mr. Claypole condescended to swallow with remarkable avidity. A more than ordinary redness in the region of the young gentleman's nose, and a kind of fixed wink in his right eye, denoted that he was in a slight degree intoxicated. These symptoms were confirmed by the intense relish with which he took his oysters, for which nothing but a strong appreciation of their cooling properties, in case of internal fever, could have sufficiently accounted. "'Here's a delicious fat one now a dear," said Charlotte. "'Try him, do. Only this one.' "'What a delicious thing is an oyster,' remarked Mr. Claypole, after he had swallowed it. "'What a pity it is a number of them should ever make you feel uncomfortable, isn't it, Charlotte?' "'It's quite a cruelty,' said Charlotte. "'So it is,' acquiesced Mr. Claypole. "'Ain't you fond of oysters?' "'Not much," replied Charlotte. "'I'd like to see you eat them now a better than eating them myself.' No," said Noah, reflectively, "'how queer!' "'Have another,' said Charlotte. "'Here's one with such a beautiful, delicate beard.' "'I can't manage any more,' said Noah. "'I'm very sorry. Come here, Charlotte, and I'll kiss you.' "'What?' said Mr. Bumble, bursting into the room. "'Say that again, sir.' Charlotte uttered a scream, and hid her face in her apron. Mr. Claypole, without making any further change in his position than suffering his legs to reach the ground, gazed at the beadle in drunken terror. I "'Say it again, ye royal audacious fellow,' said Mr. Bumble, "'how dare you mention such a thing, sir? And how dare you encourage him, you insolent minx? Kiss her!" exclaimed Mr. Bumble, in strong indignation. Oh, "'I did mean to do it,' said Noah, blubbering. "'She's always a-kissing of me, whether I like it or not.' "'Oh, Noah!' cried charlotte reproachfully you're uh, you know you're uh, retorted noah she's always a-doing of it mr bumble sir she chucks me under the chin please sir and makes all manner of love silence cried mr bumble sternly take yourself downstairs ma'am noah you shut up the shop and say another word till your master comes home at your peril and when he does come home tell him that mr bumble said he's to send an old woman's shell after breakfast to-morrow morning do you hear, sir a- kissing cried Mr. Bumble, holding up his hands, "'the sin and wickedness of the lower order in this parochial district is frightful. If Parliament don't take their abominable courses under consideration, this country's ruined, and the character of the peasantry gone for ever!' With these words the beadle strode with a lofty and gloomy air from the undertaker's premises. And now that we have accompanied him so far on his road home, and have made all necessary preparations for the old woman's funeral, let us set on foot a few inquiries after young Oliver Twist, and ascertain whether he be still lying in the ditch where Toby Crackit left him. End of Chapter Twenty Seven.